A very warm welcome to this World Game Changers podcast, where your host, Paul D. Lowe, embraces many crucial conversations that compassionately contribute towards creating a better life and world. Paul's intention is very simple, to help get people's inspirational insights and motivational messages out into the world so others may benefit. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to this World Game Changers podcast. In this episode, I'm joined by... I seem to have said this quite a lot just lately, but uh, not only a fellow countryman, but somebody of the same name, a fellow Lowe, if you will, Peter Lowe. Be a very warm welcome to you again, sir. And as usual, a very warm thank you back to you, Paul. And listeners, you may recall this mini-series of five. We uh, This one's episode three, and it is around the language of winning. Uh, we're going to be diving into a couple of chapters and Peter and Lightner's what they are. So, Pete, the language of winning. Where do we pick up with this? I think it's chapters four and five. You are the leader and dangers of the emotional tree, I believe. That's correct. Those are the two chapter headings, Paul. Yes. Right. So you are the leader. Well, um, <clears throat> most leadership things that you read these days, um, I think you'll probably agree what they deal with are, shall we say, individual leadership skills of the leader, forgetting, of course, that actually there is an environment with which that person actually has to lead. And there are things inside that environment that are not of a personal nature to him, but which actually occur and have to be managed or led, shall we say. Um, But obviously, um, successful leaders are also people who develop their own skills There are also people that already have skills and build on the skills that they've got. um, And they let their characters and their personalities come very much to the fore. And this really is what that chapter is all about, Paul, to be quite honest with you. What's coming through to me there, Pete, rightly or wrongly, is a word called empathy. Yes. Having that empathy about the people that you're working with, you're co-creating with, because, as you say, it's all very well sitting in some ivory tower. You know, I've just got my MBA or, or what have you, you know, or, you know, and, and I'm a, apparently now on paper, I'm a great leader. But if you ever got that understanding of, you know, there's an old saying, Pete, isn't there? You know, a race is only as fast as its slowest runner. And if you're not in tune with the metaphoric slower runner, there's going to be no pace to the relationship at all, is there? Yeah, absolutely spot on. Uh, You know, it's like a phrase that I've always used, you're only ever as good as your weakest cog, which is true. Mm. You know, so it's okay teaching the people at the top of the cog line, shall we say, how good to be and ignoring the bottom line. And the the issue with the bottom line is if you don't really know the people who are at that moment at the bottom line, you may ignore the fact that your very best worker might actually be in that bottom line, Paul. Mm. And that, with respect, it's not just irresponsible, it's utterly unprofessional. So, you know, I was reminded many years ago when I first went into the professional football business that ignore the worst player at your peril, or using the words of the then manager that I was working with, um, Ignore the ugly ducklings at your peril because before long they may be swimming at the front of the pack and leading the pack. Mm. Never forgot that. I never forgot that. And um, people all develop at different rates. You know, and what it comes down to, Paul, is that leaders don't create followers. 
they might initially create followers, but what they do with those followers, they turn them into leaders. Yeah. I'm, yeah, big, I'm, a, I'm so big on that, it's untrue. And, um, you know, I'm sorry if I bang that drum all the time, but um, everybody's capable of leadership. Everybody is capable of it, no matter how small, no matter how big. But at some stage in their work lives, they will have to take responsibility for something. That's leadership. I suppose the question is there, Pete, to what degree? Because I've heard it said, and I'm sure you have many, many times throughout various uh, facets of life, I don't want to be a leader. I'm kind of happy just to follow along, do my bit, contribute, and then, you know, almost in a job situation, the Monday to Friday, nine to five, and then the other time is mine. So not everybody's, you know, how can I put this, cut out to conquer the world, are they? We all play our part in different ways. Yeah, completely. But uh, that my, my point to it is this, and it really does depend on the view that you have on leadership, whether you, your perspective is just, <coughs> excuse me, is um, uh, just leading a, a team full of people or teams of people and getting them to do the things that they ordinarily don't want to do or getting them things to do the things that they do, but infinitely better. Uh, or actually, is it getting to speak to John Jones, who actually he's turned around and said, I don't want to be a leader. I just want to turn up nine to five and do my job. And then actually John Jones realizes that there are people on the shop floor that look at him for help and guidance. And even though he is not a person responsible for their shall we say, welfare inside that job, they seek him out because he's a good person to speak to. That's leadership. Mm. And so there's formal leadership and informal leadership. Yeah. Absolutely. And for me, that is what it's all about. And, it, you know, if I'm a boss of an environment and I've got great informal leaders, I'm not, you know what, Paul, using the modernism, I'm quite cool with that. Quite cool with that, yeah. Modern, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I do like that, yeah, yeah. I mean, this this whole thing around leadership is, you know, even to people that don't, and we're kind of flipping over into identity here. But for people, like I've said, that don't identify listeners themselves as, as leaders, you may may or may not be of that ill. You know, well, I'm not a leader. I'm a parent. Wow, what a leader that is, because. Well, yeah, it always takes me back, Pete, this kind of thread of conversation to, in my humble opinion, and this is obviously not football related, uh, well, not directly anyway, to something I heard for the first time as a young man in a bar coming from a very traditional working class, some would say chauvinistic background. She's only a housewife. Mm. Well, I would argue that the the women folk who've played, you know, the role over the years of the nurturer, the mother, the matriarch, call it what you will. Boy, are they world leaders. I, I can't disagree with that one bit, Paul, because funny enough, I was in a conversation this morning about the, this very thing. And um, to me, there is professional leadership and there's personal leadership. And there's not a great deal of difference between the two. Of, in fact, probably none, mm. you know, um, yeah, I, for example, I see one of the key aspects of leadership and I use almost football uh, metaphors, if you like, to explain these things. And I always say, you've got to understand who sits in your changing room, know your people inside out, mm. you know, and 
you don't often get taught that with due respect on leadership courses. You know, but I turn around and always say to people, <clears throat> not only do you know them inside out, you've got to have an insane curiosity about who they are and what they need. And the most talented member, team member that you have may be today's ugly duckling, but tomorrow, as I've already said, he may swim at the front of the pack. Well, if you don't know who he is and the needs that he ha actually has, how are you going to recognise the talent that he's got and actually be able to develop his talent? Now, if that doesn't happen, with respect, the team are the sufferers because he may well step up to the, front, to the front and be the best leader that you've got of naturality, eventually. And part of his job then is to ensure that he creates other leaders by sharing the knowledge that he's got. You can't wrap a protective film around it so that others can't access it. And that's symptomatic of a leader with his own personal quest for glory, as I say. You know, it's not just about trusting the abilities of your people, but it's absolutely about inspiring the confidence in them to pick up the reins of responsibility because tomorrow's leaders must learn their skills today. Yeah. Honed by experience. Completely. Completely. Yeah. This, uh, I mean, there's many management books written about this and that word experience, Pete, is key in any walk of life, isn't it? And, you know, yeah. and I know that on a, on a sort of off air stroke personal level, we've shared this parallel chat so many times, listeners, that, mm. you know, the mastering the, well, I've, I've, I've formed some, I've, I've wrote books about it. I formed a brand around it, mastering the game <laughs> of life. And that was based on, on the footballs of what I knew and understood about football. So if you're a defensive minded person because of the way the games shaped you or life shaped you, you know, as a young player, as a young man playing on the local fields, I was very cynical. I was very dirty as a player. I was distrusting because that was my mindset. So it doesn't matter what I was doing. And that was what I carried through into the game. You know, my attitude was, and I was actually at heart as a person, a very creative, loving kind of, and that's come back into play, you know, as the years have gone by, but I lost that for decades. So it's interesting, Pete, when we talk about leadership, maybe people all think about, you know, managers, chair people, you know, directors, that kind of thing, supervisors to use some old language. But it's not, is it? I mean, when you talk about that word responsibility, even as a young youngster coming through the ranks, the academy ranks, they're leaders in waiting, aren't they? We all are. Oh, absolutely. You know what? In any team, Paul, in, in the very best teams, there is a wide variety of talent levels. There is a wide variety of personality and character levels. We know that. And there is a wide variety of people who are able to express themselves in a way that others see either appropriate or inappropriate. We know that, okay? The really bright, innovative leader sees all of that. Now, in the biggest of environments, people will turn around and say, well, I, I, I'm, you know, I'm the leader of 3,000 employees. I can't know them all. That's correct. But he can have team leaders who know them all, Paul. Mm. So there's always a process of being able to do that. And you know what? It's people that create results, isn't it? Good and bad. And, you know, one of the key aspects of it is that you have to care for them in the good times and the bad times. 
And in, in order to do that, you've got to be a genuinely people-focused leader. And as I have always said, it's all about everything you say. In other words, it's all about your messages. The messages that are spoken and the messages that are unspoken. In other words, your body language. So if your messaging doesn't match your actions, then as I said in my book, you're about as transparent as ink-soaked blotting paper. Mm. And, and that's a fact. And people see through that. And if they see through that, then it's very, very unlikely that you'll ever be able to take them to the promised land you say you can take them to because they ain't going to trust you. Yeah. Trust, that word, trust. Do you know, isn't it amazing, you know, the power of words and a simple five-letter word like trust, boy, has that got some weight behind it when you start to dig down in. Simple five-letter word, trust. Another five-letter simple word, faith. That, that faith, that belief yeah. that we're going to win this, we will achieve despite all the odds. And this is a great metaphor, Pete, isn't it, that we've spoke about yet again, you know, mastering the game of life, which I, I personally believe is a misnomer. Yeah. I don't think we ever actually master it, but we, we learn the rules very well, and that allows us to play the game at a far higher level, in my humble opinion. No, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, what you're quite right in what you're saying. You don't master it. But what you, you do learn to do is to try to master it. And... It's that word trying that is just, it's a huge thing. Yeah, I said uh, in a conversation um, with a group of um, influential people only last week, uh, um, that was, um, a, a, it wasn't a podcast, but it was like a webinar that was um, being taped and recorded. And the word talent came up, Paul. And I said, look, guys, with respect, I worked in a business where talent was looked for all the time. Talent will always take you through the door, Paul, but it'll never keep you in the room. Mm. It'll never, ever yeah. keep you in the room. And the reason being is because people look for more than talent eventually. And also because it takes more than talent to be able to use your talent. And the reason being for that is, is that talent has to be developed. And the only way that talent can be developed is via a hard work ethic, a desire to always want to work hard and to challenge the parameters of our talent via hard work because when we work hard it means we have to face up to certain challenges whether we like that or not and so talent is is a thing that will get you in the room but it'll never keep you in there similar the opposite of that pete uh, hard work won't alone either will it? it's that combination no. of the, the balance yeah, of the yeah. two i know we've <laughs> spoke about the the great george best even Bestie, actually, wasn't enough for him to just put his boots on. He actually had to do some running from time to time. In other words, he had to work. And I, I hear this so much in, you know, in life. Oh, you know, work smart, not hard. And, and, you know, and I play devil's advocate with that, Pete, and say, OK, what does that mean then? I know full well what the implication is, what they're trying to say. Well, you know, if you learn to be smart... You don't become a busy fool. You don't have to work hard. Mm, that's interesting. You always have to work hard. I, I have to. I have to sit right by your side here, Paul, and say to you that I, I really can't disagree uh, agree with any of that. What somebody says, you always have to work hard. I spoke to a young professional golfer only five days ago, 
who is on one of the um, junior tours on his way up to try and get to the uh, full European tour. He's a talented boy, by the way. This boy can play golf and he hits the ball an absolute country mile. You know, so he's got great physical parameters on which to um, base the potential of a career. And he was talking about, you know, working smart. And I, I actually said to him, yes, working smart, but it doesn't always, that doesn't necessarily mean that you don't work hard. And he, he actually went, no, I completely accept that. I understand, he said, that when I come onto the practice ground, I need to plan my practice sessions better. And by that he meant, he said, I, that doesn't necessarily mean that when I'm out here, I work less hard. He said to me, actually, Paul, actually, I actually think it means that I have to work a fraction harder because it might mean that I have more things to do in planning smarter. I, you know, I applaud that, what he said to me. Mm -hmm. I applaud that. And also I'll say to this, talent never develops unless it works hard because the whole idea of hard work is to underpin the development of our talent by working it hard and by applying our intelligence of application of in, uh, our application of intelligence and so there has to be a hard work parameter whether we like it or not there has yeah. to be and the work of people like professor carol dweck by the way at stanford university in the states is a guru of, of mindset and is the accepted guru of it i think and certainly in world readings and, um, and writings and stuff she will turn around to you and say that the hard work ethic is far more important than the talent line anytime. Mm. That's yeah. it, all of her work. Yeah. You know, and, and I won't lie to you and say that I'm very much a disciple of her readings, of her writings rather. I, I like the stuff very much. It makes great sense to me. Mm. What also may make sense, listeners, is the second, uh, well, the fifth chapter, the second part of today's episode, Dangers of the Emotional Tree. That's a fascinating title, Pete. Take us on that path. You know what? I love the way that you've just said that because as I evolved as a coach in, in the football career that I actually had, it became obvious to me that we were all at our worst when we were at our emotional uh, highest, if you like. And what I mean by that was that... Um, when we experience results in the business or res results in that business um, that were very often negative. In other words, things that happened on a training ground that didn't go right, things that happened in a game that didn't go right. We were getting outran by another player, we were getting outfought by a player, we were getting outcoached by a coach on the touchline or whatever it might be. There comes a stage where in our psyche, our emotions take over. And the problem is, Paul, when our emotions take over, what actually happens is we create an ability to generate negative responses. And so I gave it a title and I would shout to players on the training ground when things were, were going right, stay away from the tree. And they knew what I meant by that. <laughs> Strange, isn't it? Stay away from the tree. They genuinely knew what I meant by that. Don't go near the tree because it's the place that when you climb it, this 100-foot tree, you should be able to see 25 miles on the um, uh, out on the uh, in the clouds, or goodness knows what. But actually, because your emotions limit your ability to make clear, decisive decisions, your ability to see out there onto the horizon was just gone. Mm. So it was just 
a metaphor that I'd use to the players to try and try and regain uh, emotional control. Because once your emotional control had gone in the game, your effectiveness was zero, completely. And so it was just a phrase. And in, in my book, um, Paul, The Dangers of the Emotional Tree, I started it, as you know, with a phrase. And it was by the, late, the great Lou Gehrig, who was, um, I, I believe, a baseball player in the States. And he said, a ball player who loses his head and can't keep his cool is worse than no player at all. I think that sums it up, mm. to be quite honest. Emotions. Uh, a thin line, though, Pete, isn't there? Because, you know, we're told to control our emotions and this. But there's that kind of fuel of passion that drives us at the same time. It's, it's kind of one of those just hitting that sweet spot, isn't it? Yeah, there's, there's no question about that. But you can't expect the people you work with to, to have emotional control if you yourself can't demonstrate that to them. You see, that that's the challenge of a leader, isn't it? Mm. A leader, whether he or she likes it or not, has to be all things to all people in that environment. They've got no choice. That's the seat that they sit in. And so if they're not prepared to accept what that seat actually says to them before they sit in it, then they shouldn't take that seat. Because if they do, then with respect, they're letting their people down before they start. That's a strong statement that I've just come out with. And that's quite an emotional statement in itself. But here's the thing, Paul, that emotional statement was delivered under emotional control. It was not delivered with a lost head. It was delivered with a head that was very firmly on a pair of shoulders. Because in the business that I've worked in, I've seen people uh, who were apparent supposed leaders of teams of people, managers, football clubs, whatever that might be, have zero emotional control and then expect their people to be able to want to follow them. They're just not going to do that. It's as simple as that. Can I read you a very small few lines from this book, Paul? Would you permit me to do that? Yeah, of course. Absolutely. Okay. And it comes from a little section in this book on, on, on the chapter of emotional control. And it's called Losses, Blame Cultures and Destroying Relationships. And halfway down through a paragraph, I, I started off by saying, you never achieve anything on your own. But advertising the authentic you as being a carer of mindsets of putting an arm round shoulders to big people up and then jumping out of the office as the devil who wears Prada when the world according to you stops turning your way is not authentic or real. It's just an image of a tyrant dressed to kill, not thrill. And I think that says that all about emotional control and leadership. Mm, I like it. Yeah. I actually made that up myself, believe it or not. So I must be semi-intelligent somewhere, Paul. <laughs> the uh, I shall control my emotions and not respond. <laughs> but um, as you was unfolding there, Pete, my mind sort of was over the years went back to some of the managers that have stood on touchlines, some extremely emotional and animated, and others as cool as the proverbial cucumber. Um, and and equally with massive successes. It has to be said. So yeah. but I think the management game's changed, hasn't it? And I think life's changed. You know, yet again, I went back to that mastering the game of life where philosophy, where, you know, how we play football, 
or you, you, you know, it may be even sport. I mean, football, I can talk about sport generally less so. But that how we play the game reflects how we play the game of life is a very strong parallel. But to use a well-known cliche, listeners, the game has changed. Both games, I think and feel, have changed dramatically. Now, that's not for me to judge. Are they for better, for worse? That's an individual thing. I do have my own views on that. Um, but there is that kind of, and I still stand by it, Pete, that, that thin line between displaying passion and fire and desire, but within a kind of not letting it overspill to the point where you lose control. Uh, yeah, a brilliant, Paul. I mean, the way in which you've just said that, and it is brilliant as well, by the way, and I've got two things to say to that. Firstly, we're all emotional beings. None of us own that single monopoly to accept that just for ourselves. We just don't. So before you start to limit the volatility of others, you have to ensure that you know what ignites your fuse paper. Mm. And the second thing is this. There is always a reason why our heads sometimes self-ignite. We accept that people bring their whole selves to work and that any behavior that departs from that norm is likely to have a reason behind it. And so the sum of, the, of separate parts is always weaker than a team of collaborators. And so consistency in your behaviors prevents the catastrophe in you becoming a destabilizing force for your environment. And those two things go hand in hand with each other. We're all emotional beings. But thinking that we have a monopoly of greater emotionality than others is just destabilizing an environment before you start. Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Any other thoughts, Pete, around, you know, generally or, or specifically for that matter, you are the leader or dangers of the emotional tree? You know, the two chapters that we've, uh, I think it's probably say, fair to say, just flirted with, really, because... You know, in a few minutes, relative few minutes, we can't hope to do justice to, you know, the content of your book. Any any other thoughts, any pertinent thoughts that we've, we've missed around those two chapters? I, I, there's so much I could say, uh, Paul, but I think that being a leader and having emotional control, whether you like it or not, is inextricably linked, okay? The great Sir Alex Ferguson said that, it is acceptable every now and then to ball and shout and to lose your temper. And the reason being is because we are human beings. Okay. If that is the authentic you, by the way, then people know that's the authentic you. Mm. But I think that what is very important in leadership is that there is a, an authentic you, which must be presented to your people on a daily basis. And there is a reason Paul. People like consistency and they want to know where's the consistency in, in our leader. And so if there is a place by which your performance, um, in your performance, in the performance of your team, it promotes, um, shall we say, a, re a reaction in your leader that isn't particularly pleasant, but it is part of his authentic side of him, then actually it's not a surprise to you, is it? If it becomes a surprise to you and takes you by shock, shall we say, and bangs you off your orbit and leaves you in a place where you can't reorbitize yourself, for the want of a better way of putting it, 
then there is a problem inside the environment, shall we say there. You know, since there's not the game on Sunday night, Paul, and we've, we've all seen the fallout of the game on Sunday night, haven't we? The mm. side of the game, the new racism side of the game, and it's not new. It's just been sleeping for 25 years, mate. It's been asleep for a while. And I'm, I won't get into that subject because obviously it's one that we could talk about just for, in a podcast alone, couldn't we? But it's not going to get dealt with unless the leaders of society accept the fact that this is not just a football problem. It's that football is a catalyst for it. It's a society problem. And we have to accept that. And therefore, a leader's responsibility, whether they like this or not, at the top of the tree of leadership in this country, has to accept the fact that they have to lead dealing with the problems of racism. And that evokes more, probably more emotions than anything else in society in the UK at this moment in time by what's, by virtue of what's happened here in this country in the last week. Yes, intriguing thought, intriguing, well, profound thought, profound thought. And uh, on that relatively somber note, Pete, let's leave it there. Let's Indeed. leave it there. We'll pick back up again on, um, on episode four where we'll be delving into the cycle of change and the power of the changing room. So there we go, listeners, in the next episode. The cycle of change and the power of the changing room. That one conjures, that second one for me, Pete, conjures up a whole myriad of interesting thoughts. But uh, let's, just tease you. One, Paul. <laughs> let's just tease you with that one for the time being listeners anything to sign off with pete or have we kind of boxed it off there i think we've boxed it off today i mean i have to say to you uh, it's a real pleasure to be able to talk about the things that you that as a as an individual are very um how may i put this close to your own heart and close to how you want to be as a person shall we say and so to be able to um in some ways, Paul, in the truth, and I'm being quite honest about this, I think you've probably picked up, I speak quite passionately about these things. I'm letting people into uh, the beliefs of my soul here, if I'm honest, because my soul went into that book. Mm. You know, there's a few years of experience gone into that, good and bad, um, and personality and character traits, good and bad. And so it's nice to be able to speak about it, really. And I, I thank you very much for um, the opportunity to do so and for people to listen to it. And I hope that they find it interesting. Well, I certainly do, Pete. Um, you know, for me, it's uh, to use a well-known cliche, I find it hand in glove. I really yeah. do. It's, you know, and, and OK, listeners, Pete and I have had the benefit of, you know, off-air conversations and our attitude and our philosophy of life. You know, it's no coincidence that we do share that kind of, mastering the game of life philosophy and how you play the game is how you play in life and there are reasons for that it's not coincidence but uh, maybe we'll dig a little bit deeper on that on the next uh, on the next episode so until then Pete, i just want to thank you once again um and uh, and got how remiss nearly forgot nearly forgot listeners just to say share your contact details pete with us if you will yes by all means by uh uh, my my telephone number is 07531 Guys can get me on um, two emails. One is pete at first 
pete-team.net or pete at petelow.com. Super. And all that remains now, listeners, is to blow the final whistle on this uh, intriguing episode by saying, as I always do, remember the world's changing. How will you respond? Thanks very much for listening to this World Game Changers podcast episode. Hopefully you found it interesting and helpful. Drop a line to paul at worldgamechangers.org with any thoughts or questions you may have, and he'll be more than happy to respond. Remember, the world is changing. How will you respond?